Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 18, verses 15 to 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good evening. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our Good Friday service this evening. Can I extend a special welcome to you if you don't normally attend our church and you're checking out our virtual service maybe for the first time? We're so glad that you've joined us today, and we hope that you're encouraged by our service, especially during these difficult times. Good Friday is somewhat ironic because on this day, we commemorate a death by calling it good. But this was not just any death. It was as savage and as brutal a death as you can imagine. Prolonged torture, precisely designed to maximize pain all the way to the moment of expiration. A close friend of mine is a North Korean defector, and I remember him telling me about the public executions that he was forced to watch as a little boy. He didn't want to watch, but he was afraid of what would happen if he didn't. And to this day, decades later, he still remembers the sights and the sounds. If you and I were witnessing the death of Jesus, we would be traumatized by the spectacle of it. Wits tearing flesh off Jesus' back, the nails piercing his wrists and feet, the crown of thorns driven into his skull, blood and tears flowing down his trembling body, and the sounds, cries of anguish, agonizing screams, prolonged moans, heart-wrenching sobs, desperate gasps for breath. 
And we can make peace with a hardened criminal being executed, but our hearts break when we see an innocent person fall victim to injustice. The most innocent man who ever lived, no sin, no blemish, no fault, perfection embodied, this man dies, this death. Mocked by religious hypocrites, reviled by the crowds, abandoned by the disciples closest to him. Tonight, we remember this horrific event, and somehow we call it good. How? How can something so ugly and vile possibly be good? Perhaps more than ever, we need the message of Good Friday. Perhaps tonight, more than at any other point in our lives, do we need words of hope that something so destructive, something so merciless and unrelenting can possibly be turned into something good? As I speak right now, in our city, thousands have died. Tens of thousands are ill. Millions are isolated and afraid. Our hospitals are overwhelmed. Unemployment is skyrocketing. The economy is staggering. And they say that the worst is still yet to come. And it is both my burden and my privilege this evening to tell you good news. News that we serve a God and King, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again and reigns sovereign over all the universe. Every week during this pandemic in our services, we're answering the question, what to do when? We've heard what to do when I'm afraid, what to do when I'm anxious, or what to do when I'm isolated and lonely. Tonight, we'll address what to do when I feel powerless. Rather than focusing exclusively on the crucifixion tonight, I want to point you to some of the events leading up to Jesus' death the night before his death. Our passage this evening is from John 18. We'll look at three things. We'll look at Peter, who is powerless, Jesus, who is steadfast, and then finally, what that means for you and me. So Jesus in John 18, he's betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested by a Roman company of soldiers and taken before the high priest to stand trial. Remember that after Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus's popularity, it reaches a new level of fervor. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem to a hero's welcome as crowds line the streets shouting, Hosanna to the King. The Jewish leadership is terrified that Jesus would rally the crowds to his side. So what do they do? They execute a plan to arrest and try him in the middle of the night, the night of Passover, when all of the Jews would be celebrating in their homes. And it is a chaotic scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
The darkness is punctuated sporadically by the full moon and lanterns and torches and hundreds of Roman soldiers with weapons are anxious and alert. The tension is palpable. Would Jesus resist or would he come quietly? They had heard the stories of the miracles. They knew that he attracted crowds of followers. And Jesus, knowing everything that would happen to him, when they come for him, he comes forward and he asks them, whom do you seek? They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus responds, I am he. Actually, in the Greek, it's just I am, which is the Old Testament covenant name for God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus utters the divine name, I am. And in that moment, it is clear to everybody in the garden that he is more than just a man. It is a glorious glimpse of the divine. Just a glimpse. But it causes everybody to draw back and fall to the ground. Hardened Roman soldiers, skeptical Jewish leaders, bitter Pharisees alike, all draw back and fall to the ground. And then Jesus asked the crowd to let his friends, the disciples, go to take only him. Then all of a sudden, out of the darkness, charges Peter. He draws his sword and he swings it, cutting off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. But Jesus commands Peter to put the sword away, and he surrenders to the soldiers. He is bound and taken away to stand trial. Peter He's able to follow Jesus at a distance because the authorities, they don't have time to go after the disciples. They barely have time to prosecute Jesus, and it's a very flimsy case at that. So Peter, he's not really in danger. He's with another disciple who goes into the court of the high priest with Jesus, but Peter, he stands outside the door, too afraid to go in. And the other disciple, probably John, he comes back out to bring Peter in. And there's a servant girl who is watching the door. And John speaks to her to bring Peter in. And as Peter is entering, he's walking by the servant girl. And she asks him, kind of off the cuff, hey, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? We're not also, she already knows that John is a disciple. So it's more of a rhetorical question. And the servant girl poses no threat to Peter. She, she has no power. And you can tell by the way she phrases her question, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? That it's just this throwaway comment. She's not trying to sniff him out or to expose him as a disciple, but to Peter, it is the Spanish Inquisition. He, he can't take the heat. So he says, 
I am not. What happened to Peter? Just moments earlier in the garden, he was empowered, full of zeal and courage. Let's go! Charging into battle against hundreds of Roman soldiers. But just a few verses later, something huge has changed inside of him. All of that confidence and courage vanish in an instant. The servant girl terrifies him. And Peter finds himself completely powerless, cowering in fear, anxiety, and despair. I wonder how many of us have experienced a similar transformation in the past few weeks. Maybe we were confident, hopeful, carefree, ambitious. Let's go! And then out of nowhere, COVID-19 breaks out and the rug is pulled out from under us and we are left with an overwhelming sense of helplessness. We feel powerless against the threat of disease, death, economic collapse, and social isolation. The sense of security that we once had is now gone. Perhaps we can relate to Peter tonight in a way that we haven't been able to before. So why does Peter's confidence collapse like a stack of cards? I think it's because of two reasons. First, he dramatically overestimates himself. Remember at the Last Supper when Jesus tells his disciples, he kind of predicts it, he says they will all fall away from him. Peter declares, even though they all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus replies, he says, well, actually, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter won't believe it. He says emphatically, according to Mark, that if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter has a very inflated sense of self. He embodies what the world prizes, self-confidence and determination. He relies on himself. And the problem with this attitude is that it is incompatible with Jesus. For Peter, his relationship with Jesus was primarily about what he could do and what he must do for Jesus, not what Jesus would do for him. His confidence was in his own devotion to Jesus, not in Jesus' devotion to Peter. Do we ever approach Jesus this way? Rather than trusting that he is king over all of creation, rather than believing Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If we're honest, we have turned religion into a system of things that we must do for God in order for him to bless our lives now. And sure, heaven will come later if we're Christian. But I, if I try to obey God and love him, then he will bless my life and make me 
happy. And what happens to Peter is that his faith is tested and he realizes that his devotion to Jesus, it was not that strong at all. He has a misplaced sense of power. So ultimately, Peter overestimated himself, but he also misunderstood Jesus. He only focused on the earthly and material benefits of Jesus rather than seeing him as a savior of something far deeper, more pervasive, and more deadly. Peter, he didn't really feel like he needed a personal savior for his sins, but rather he wanted to join the Jesus movement to overthrow these Roman oppressors. For Peter, his biggest problem was outside of him, not inside of him. They were the problem. Everybody else, the Romans. Friends, can I say that your biggest problem and my biggest problem right now is not COVID-19 related? It's not the economy, it's not politics, it's not social distancing. Your biggest problem is inside of you. When Peter is at the height of his misplaced confidence, it is as soon as Jesus says, I am, and the Roman soldiers all fall to the ground, and he thinks, this is it. This is the time when Jesus will take his stand politically and overthrow his oppressors. But he is devastated when he sees Jesus surrender and Jesus is taken away. In Jesus' seeming absence, Peter finally comes face to face with his own inadequacy, and it is traumatic. Perhaps one of the reasons why this time has been so jarring for us is that we have relied too much on ourselves. We've placed our security too much in the material world and the cares of this life. Church has been a responsibility to fulfill. It, faith is just a supplement to our everyday lives rather than the driving force of life. Maybe one of the reasons why God has allowed for this pandemic to be unleashed like this is to wake many people up to a life that exists beyond this one and to get us to stop relying on ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes this, and it is especially relevant for us today. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So to go back to the original question, what to do when I feel powerless? Well, John does something very interesting in this passage. The other gospel writers, they record Peter's denial 
uninterrupted. So we have denial one, denial two, and denial three. But John, he deliberately splices into the story of Peter's denial a glimpse of Jesus on trial. He gets to Peter's first denial, and then suddenly there's a cutaway to show Jesus before the high priest, and then it cuts back to Peter for denials two and three. He does this to show the contrast between Jesus and Peter. I know a lot of you are fans of the movie Parasite. One of the reasons that movie was so brilliant is the way the director seamlessly and masterfully contrasts two families side by side. The Parks are rich and the Kims are poor, and therefore the way they experience all of life, and particularly hardship, is dramatically different. This is what John is doing in this passage. Peter is cowering, he's shrinking, he's lying. Jesus is standing, unshakable, unflappable, and truthful. Peter is dishonest, but Jesus maintains his integrity. I love that John does this because it's as though he's showing Peter at his most powerless and his lowest moment. But before he can even get through it, he needs to show us Jesus. He needs to remind us of our steadfast Savior. Even at our worst, our Savior stands resolute and unfaltering in the face of opposition and injustice. Peter denying Jesus three times, but at the center of it all, Jesus stands for Peter. There is a lot of irony in this preliminary hearing. This should have been a momentous occasion. The long-awaited Messiah coming face to face with the high priest of God's people. The high priest, he should have greeted Jesus in all of the pomp and circumstance of a royal coronation. I'm picturing the glorious ceremony at the end of Tolkien's Return of the King, when the people of Middle-earth are gathered at the fields of Pelennor outside the first wall of Minas Tirith. Faramir, the steward of Gondor, he declares the return of the king, and Aragorn ascends. Frodo, he takes the crown, he gives it to Gandalf, who places the crown upon the king's head. And the long-awaited king enters the city to the sound of trumpets. This is more like what John 18 should have been. Instead, the King of Kings stands before the high priest in chains, in the stealth of night. This is not an official ceremony, but an illegal and disordered arrangement. Jesus is bound and even struck in the face, but he does not fear. He does not back down, and everything he says shines a light upon the injustice of the proceedings. 
These verses are so rich in subtext. Take a look at them with me. Verse 19 says that Jesus is asked about his disciples. But unlike Peter, Jesus refuses to give them up. Jesus turns the tables on them rather than answering their questions. Jesus becomes the one asking the questions. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have said nothing in secret. He's pointing out the secrecy of this meeting. The law, it actually required daytime proceedings for capital cases. So Jesus is saying, why are we meeting at night? Verse 21, Jesus says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jewish law, it required the firsthand testimony of eyewitnesses. Jesus is asking Annas the high priest where his witnesses were. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jewish law, it required mercy for the accused. The courts had to do everything possible to exonerate the accused. Striking Jesus in the face, it was entirely inappropriate and illegal. John presents Jesus as being the victim of a grave injustice, a mockery of a trial in which all laws of prisoner rights and due process are abandoned. But while Peter is so quick to deny Jesus, Jesus refuses to deny the disciples who have abandoned him. John is telling us that we cannot trust in ourselves. Jesus is the only one we can trust. It's fascinating that Jesus says in the garden, I am. And Peter says three times in the courtyard, I am not. When Peter says, I am not, that is his greatest shame. But for him and for us, Jesus turns that into our greatest hope. But you know what? It's not enough that Jesus endured injustice. I mean, he can't just be an example for us to be inspired by when we are struggling or we feel powerless. Thinking of Jesus being resolute, it's not enough. We need to be saved and delivered. Jesus' power, it has to come to us somehow. And we see that Jesus does much more than stand trial. After this preliminary hearing, Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He is then flogged by a whip of metal and bone fragments designed to tear off the flesh. A crown of thorns is twisted together by the soldiers and driven into his skull. He's mocked. He's beaten by the Roman soldiers. He's humiliated. He's led outside of the city 
bearing his own cross to a hill called Golgotha. And there he is crucified. Jesus dies. Jesus dies. Jesus, the light of the world, is swallowed up by darkness. The living water is now parched and dry. The resurrection and the life is now a crucified corpse. The king of kings bows his head and surrenders his life. Why? For Peter and for you. Jesus is a substitute and a sacrifice. The death Peter should have died for his sins, the death you and I should die for our sin, Jesus is our substitute and he is sacrificed for us. Behold the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. Well, now the Lamb of God is slain. And how did Jesus die? Like so many dying in our hospitals today, at this very moment, alone, isolated and separated from the ones he loved, abandoned by his disciples. His own mother cannot hold and comfort him. She can only watch helplessly from a distance. But the worst yet, is that Jesus is abandoned by his heavenly Father. Matthew and Mark, they record the cry of dereliction that Jesus cries in his dying moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no comfort for Jesus on the cross. No friends, no family, and even his heavenly Father forsakes him. Jesus looks to his father and sees only absence. This is how Jesus died for you and for me. This is good news for us because Good Friday is not the end of the story. The light of the world was swallowed up by darkness, but the darkness could not contain it. I hope you'll join us on Sunday as we hear the glorious story of the resurrection and the empty tomb. Jesus has conquered death once and for all, and he now reigns as king at the right hand of the Father. So when we feel powerless, we can look to Jesus, who is all-powerful. He's victorious over sin and death. He has authority over all things. And like he did before the high priest, Jesus stands for us. There's a story in the Bible that breaks me every time I think of it. It's the story of Stephen in the book of Acts. Stephen was one of the original seven deacons in the early church. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And much like Jesus, he was doing some great wonders and signs among the people, but he was also saying some very provocative things that the Jewish leadership could not refute. So just like Jesus, 
he ends up standing before the high priest to be questioned. And the result of this trial is that the people in the room are so enraged by Stephen's answers that they put their hands over their ears and they rush at him screaming. They take him and they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. Stephen in this moment is as powerless as one could possibly be. I mean, can you imagine standing there as people take stones to beat you with or to throw at you? But as the mob drags him out, as they pick up their stones, and as death is right there for him, do you know what Stephen sees? Acts 7.55 says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's fascinating is that the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our true high priest and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's seated. But in the moment when Stephen needs Jesus the most, when he is most powerless, he looks and he doesn't see Jesus sitting. He sees Jesus standing for him. Remember that when Jesus died, he saw nothing. He saw nobody. But Stephen dies and he sees Jesus standing for him. Can I tell you this evening that when you feel powerless, just as Jesus stood for Peter and for Stephen, see Jesus standing for you. Do you feel powerless during this time of crisis? Perhaps you're listening to this alone in a hospital bed, sick and maybe even dying, isolated and separated from your loved ones, Jesus is standing for you. Have you lost a loved one? Or are you terrified that you will lose someone you love? Jesus is standing for you. Have you lost a business or been laid off and, and you don't know how you're going to feed your family or keep your home? Can I tell you that Jesus is standing for you? Perhaps you're struggling with a particular sin or addiction, and especially during this time of isolation, relapse after relapse, and it feels as though you will never break free. Jesus is standing for you. Are you crippled by your past? Are you filled with fear, shame, and regret? Jesus is standing for you. Are you worried that your marriage and your family will not survive this time of quarantine? Jesus is standing for you.
Are you plagued by depression, anxiety, and despair? Jesus is standing for you. Or maybe you're not a believer and you're here because you're looking for something or someone to cling to and save you in this time of crisis. If that is you, I want to invite you to repent of your sins and to trust in something eternal. Someone who will stand for you no matter what your circumstances are. On this Good Friday, let us all look to Jesus who died so that we might live. I close with these much-needed words to us from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Many of you know this. He says that the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Will you pray with me?